how do we reconcile the Bible and science? This has been a question that's been on my mind for mm, my entire Christian life. I am not a scientist. Uh, I have not read a lot of the scientific data when it comes to things like old earth, young earth, literal six day creation versus some sort of figurative day in Genesis one and all the stuff that comes with that. So, uh, but I've been on this um, kick recently of just kind of sitting back and listening and learning from those who have dug into this issue. And it, I think it's a really, really important issue. Um, it's something that a lot of uh, non-Christians are wrestling with, not, not even wrestling. I think they just simply, you know, dismiss the Bible because they believe it just blatantly goes against science. But a lot of Christians are wrestling with this as well. And as you probably know and have experienced, there's lots of pretty volatile, heated debates within the Christian church about how to reconcile the Bible and science, if it can even be reconciled. And so I've uh, been doing a lot of listening and reading in this area as much as I can. I, I can't devote a lot of time to it. But on this podcast, I have had uh, Tremper Longman on a few weeks ago. And um, I have on the show today the one and only Dr. John Walton. If there ever is somebody who understands the relationship between the Bible and science from a biblical standpoint... It would be John Walton. This guy is a beast. And if John's listening, that's a positive, <laughs> that's a positive uh, term here that I'm using of you. I, John has written dozens of books. Uh, many of them have been high powered academic books. He's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. He is one of the top evangelical Old Testament scholars. I mean, I would say he's one of the top Old Testament scholars full stop but he is a Bible-believing evangelical Christian, and I am so excited for you to listen to this discussion. He is very, very informed on the scientific data, um, but he's even more informed on the biblical data. We talk about uh, Genesis 1 and 2. We talk about Adam and Eve. Uh, we also wander over and talk about uh, the Tower of Babel, which I found out in the episode that this was the subject of his doctoral dissertation from, I don't know, like 40 years ago or whatever. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com, support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to premium content in return. And what else do I got to announce? I think that's about it. Let's just dive into this conversation. Please welcome to the show for the first time, hopefully not the last time, the one and only Dr. John Walton. I'm here with a world-renowned Old Testament scholar, Dr. John Walton. Um, I, I don't even know, John, if you know how many books you've written. <laughs> Do you have a total for us? But I know it's it's in the... Uh, 30, I don't know. Around Depends the, the count. <laughs> and these are high-powered, I mean, really, really thoughtful stuff. Uh, these are two of my favorites. Uh, if I can put these up here, let me start with The, the Lost World of Genesis 1, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. Um, for you on the podcast, you know, I'm, I'm kind of holding stuff up here, but, um, these two books in particular, two of many books you've written, John, that have combined really robust scholarship, but in a, in a prose that people can understand. So I, you know, I wanted you have you, I want to have you on the show because I want to talk about the Bible and science. Um, so here's my leading question is, you know, a lot of people think that the Bible and science are enemies are in conflict and that science 
um, kind of wages war against the veracity of Scripture. I think you take a different view. Um, are the Bible and science friend or foes? Well, of course, some scientists wage war against Christianity and faith, and some people who really value the Bible wage war against science. <laughs> but if we're going to ask whether science and faith are inherently contradictory or in conflict, we have to ask an important question first, and that is, what claims are they making? Hmm. Now, they can't be in conflict if they are not making contradictory claims. And so my approach is to say, before we decide on whether there's a war or not, let's find out what they're saying, okay. what claims, not what the scientists and the theologians are saying, but what is the Bible saying and what is science saying? What claims are they making? And to me, that's the, the first line of, of approach uh, to say, let's figure that out before we get to the other thing. That's helpful. Um, I recently had a mutual friend, Tremper Longman, on the show to talk about the Bible and science when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, really. Um, and we, we spent a lot of time on that. I don't necessarily want to spend a ton of time on that, but would love to maybe run through some of those same questions with you to get your thoughts on it. So in, in light of what you just said, Genesis 1, um, let's just say, uh, seems to say the world is created in six literal days. Um, I don't think it says anything about the age of the earth per se, but um, somebody could come at science and read Genesis 1 without any kind of biblical background and say, wow, this doesn't seem to be very scientific. So how should we understand Genesis 1 in light of the scientific data? We can never afford to read scripture superficially. And sometimes scientists who really know nothing about the Bible are inclined to do that. But also sometimes Christians who really haven't delved very deeply might be inclined to do that. The reason we can't do that is because our superficial readings tend to be informed by our own cultural perspectives. And our cultural perspectives are not necessarily a good guide to what the biblical authors are saying. People who take the Bible seriously are interested in being accountable to the biblical authors. After all, the biblical authors are the channels for the authority of God. And therefore, if we want to be accountable to God, we should be accountable to the biblical authors. And that means that we have to try to make a connection with them and figure out what it is that they are saying. And if we read the Bible superficially, if we read it intuitively, our intuitions take us to our default. And our default is our cultural perspectives. Hmm. So I, I make the claim that if we're going to read these texts well— and read them as God's authoritative message, we'd better delve into it and try to understand that as best we can. So how, so Genesis 1, some of the specific language, you know, evening and morning, day one, evening and morning, day two. Um, and this is something I kind of framed with, with Tremper, even though I would come from an old earth perspective. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I like to push back on my own kind of assumptions. So you know, what I asked Tremper, I said, if um, um, if the science pointed to a young earth, would you would we not naturally read Genesis one that way? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, is the only reason why we would say evening and morning doesn't really mean evening and morning in a literal sense. Um, it's not a literal day is is the only reason why we're even entertaining that because the scientific data doesn't seems to go against that. Or is there something intrinsic to the text itself that um, even if 
the science pointed to a young earth you know we would say i don't know that kind of presents problems with the way genesis one is is being framed if that makes sense what, what are your thoughts on that well i think we always have to read it within the framework of what the narrator was intending to do with that structure is he intending to use that to give us the age of the earth that's certainly one option you could consider. Mm -hmm. Is he intending the words to be taken as 24-hour days? I tend to think he is. Mm -hmm. But people therefore conclude that it must be a young earth because they also think that he's dealing with a material cosmos mm -hmm. and the material origins of the cosmos. And that's where I would disagree. When I look at... Yeah. the Okay, so when I look at the biblical text, um, I don't see this as an account of material origins because my understanding of the ancient world and the Bible is that materialism or the material aspects aren't of any significance to them at all. They are most concerned about order. And when God creates, he creates order. And when he creates order, he creates with a purpose. Order and purpose are related ideas. And so really, I go back to the, the question, counterintuitive, that's why I ask it, because um, I want to get past my own intuitions. I go back to the question, wait a minute, what kind of creation account is this? Hmm. Is it the kind I would think in my intuitive reading from my own day, scientifically directed and focused? Or if they had a different kind of focus, then I need to move away from my intuition and read it the way they would intend it. Hmm. So, for instance, if I have time for a quick illustration. Sure. If you go to a play, I, and because of all kinds of things, you get there late. And you know, it's a half hour late. And you walk in and you sit down. Everything's going on. And you poke the person next to you and you say, how did the play begin? Now, we find that this is a very congenial person, uh, despite the fact that you've just interrupted him. And... He says, well, the play was written in 1934, and it was a Pulitzer Prize candidate. And you say, no, 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 no. I, I don't want to know about the script. He said, well, that's how the play began. You can't have a play without a script. Hmm. You say, oh, I, I get that. I get that. But no, that's not what I want. Well, okay. Um, this theater and its stage were built in the 1950s. You say, no, no, I, I don't want to know that. He said, well, you can't have a play without a stage. You have to have something for it to happen. Well, I know that, you say, but that's not my question. Okay, fine, fine. The set was constructed just three years ago, and it was it was purposed toward this particular... You say, no, no, I'm, I'm not interested in the set. Well, what would a play be without a set? He replies, I know. Now the lady on the other side has gotten interested, and she says, I can straighten this out. The cast was chosen by the Johnson Casting Company. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> this is not what I want. Tell me what happened since the curtain opened. <laughs> oh, they say. Well, that's not you know, really how the play began. Well, yes, it is by my questions. Mm. You can see that all of those are correct answers. And all of those aspects are necessary for the play. That doesn't mean that every question and every story and every answer is interested in all of those other factors. Okay. When I think about, you know, when we talk about cosmic origins in our scientific world, we're talking a lot about the stage and the theater. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, but Israel doesn't really care about the stage or theater. Do they know there is one? Of course. But they're interested in something else. They, they want to know kind of what happened since the curtain opened, maybe a little bit about the set. Okay? Yeah. So when they ask, how did the world begin? There are likewise many different ways that that question could be answered correctly. Hmm. But not everybody wants the same answer. Not everybody asks the same question with the same focus in mind. So that's what I say when we go to Genesis 1, we have to say, what kind of creation account is this? What's the story they want to tell me? Mm-hmm. Not what's the story I want to know. Now, yeah. my conclusion, people might have different opinions on it. My conclusion is that Israel is interested in the ordering of the cosmos for the purpose of God dwelling in the cosmos with them. Now, again, I have my ways to get to that, and I think I can demonstrate it, but not everybody agrees. Yeah. Well, but I mean, again, that's... Yeah, your book, Lost World Genesis 1, I, so it's been a while since I read it, but everything you're saying now, it's starting to come back. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you do build... I know some people are like, oh, where's the evidence for that? Well, he, he John has written extensively on, on the evidence, um, and we don't have time to go through all the evidence. Let me just make sure I understand what you're saying, though, that... And this is like maybe a classic term, and now I'm nervous using modern day <laughs> categories. But you know the classic creation ex nihilio that that mm-hmm. God that Genesis one is all about God making something out of nothing, speaking material, the material universe into existence. Are you saying whether or not that's true is another question? The question is that's not the main point of Genesis. Genesis is about ordering the material cosmos to make room for the divine presence in this cosmos? Is that one way to frame it that you might resonate with? Absolutely. I mean, certainly it's my theology that when God created the material universe, he created it out of nothing. It's good theology. It has some foundation in the Bible, and I believe it. But that doesn't mean that Israel has to be telling that story, just like you didn't have to tell the stage story or the cast story. What story are they telling? And yes, I think it's a different story. It's a story that has to do with the idea of ordering with purpose to okay. be sacred space where God will dwell with his people. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have one or two pieces of, let's just say, textual evidence that you would point to to show that your reading is is what's going on in Genesis 1? Well, I, I think it very is very easily demonstrated Number one, by the fact that there is a seventh day Mm. and that we have to figure out how to put that in place. And we goof it up because we don't understand that rest equals rule. Mm. God rules in his cosmos. And so we get mixed up with that. Um, But the other thing is that as you go through each day, ask yourself a question. What is being manufactured materially in this day? I mean, day one, God creates light. That's not material. Or you could say, I like this even better, he creates day and night. That's not material. He creates time. Mm. That's not material. That's day one. Day two, right, he creates space for us to live in. That's not material. Mm. Day three, he says, let the like, let dry land emerge. Let plants sprout. It doesn't talk about him manufacturing these things. And so you go through day by day and you say, wait, wait. Now you get to day four and you say, ah, I got you here because it said God made the lights, the sun, moon and stars. 
Well, be careful there. Yes, it says God made them. What are the sun, moon, and stars? Okay, we say, well, they are material bodies. And so this means God manufactured these material bodies. But wait a minute, this isn't our story, this is Israel's. What does Israel think they are? They don't know that the sun, moon, and stars are objects. They don't know that they're material. They think the stars are engraved in the underside of the sky. They don't know that the moon is a rock in space. To them, the sun, moon, and stars are, big surprise here, hold your breath, lights. And that's what they call them. And so again, God made the lights. Okay, but he made them to be signs, seasons, days, and years. Order. Yeah. Okay, so even when it looks to us like he's making objects, no, Israel doesn't see it that way. Interesting. Yeah. Is, is there something too with the Hebrew verbs going on here? I forgot. I thought I remember you saying that the mm -hmm. verbs could be taken, you know, in an ex nihilio sense, or they could be taken more in a molding, forming, uh, order well, kind of sense. Or as always, when we deal with uh, with Hebrew terms, we have to figure out whatever nuance we can bring to them by their usage. And we find that bara, the verb translated create. Bara is used for all kinds of things that are not material. God creates darkness. God creates purity. God creates the nations. All kinds of things. And therefore, I would say, so this is not specifically material creation that Bara screams at you. Again, it's something more like ordering and organizing. Yeah, okay. okay? Now, I'd still translate it create, but for an Israelite, to create means to order. So yeah. I'm okay with that. The other verb, asa, which they translate make, okay, really is a verb that communicates that God is the agent. It never tells you what level he's involved as agent. Is this ultimate cause or indirect cause? That's our philosophy. Don't, don't <laughs> bog down the Hebrew with that. Yeah. Uh, but asa suggests that God is the agent. So when God asad, the great lights, the sun, moon, and stars, we say he made them. Well, yes, but that just says he's the agent in their creation. What is, again, if it's an ordering thing, he's the agent in ordering them. He's the agent who orders. So in that sense, again, we make a mistake when we connect material uh, objects to all of these things. So that that would fit, if I could read between the lines, that would, that would fit in with more of the science. So if we do see evidence, for instance, of, millions of years of evolution, you're saying, according to the way you're reading Genesis 1, um, that there's really no conflict there because the point of Genesis 1 isn't to say not evolution, but ex nihilio creation. It's it's talking about something just different. Was that Would that be accurate to say? So they're not making competing claims, right? Because they have their own claims to make. They're not competing claims, and therefore they are compatible. Certainly, I would never say that the Bible is therefore talking about evolution. Right. The Israelites don't know evolution, and they're not talking about it. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you did you did I hear you correctly um, that you said you do believe that the authors conveying a literal 24-hour days, but you can have well, a literal 24-hour days and still have an old earth? I mean— See, if they're days for ordering, not for material manufacturing, all right. then we don't—then it says nothing about the age of the material. If it's not a material account. Again, think about Solomon's temple. 
he spends seven years on the material phase, building the, the structure. Seven years doing that. When it was all done, okay, there it is. The site's been cleared. The workmen are gone. The scaffolding is gone. The tools are gone. Is it a temple? Well, no, it's not. It's been prepared to be a temple. It's built to be a temple, but it's not a temple. Okay, so what happens between the material phase and whatever the next phase is? Well, the temple phase, where it becomes a temple. Well, we know what that process is because the Bible tells us. There is an inauguration ceremony, a dedication ceremony. The Bible tells us all about it. And that dedication ceremony is seven days. Mm. So it's seven days for the structure to be made functional, to be ordered, to actually begin working for what it was designed to do. And so in that sense, the seven literal days, after all, it is seven literal days, but that's for inauguration and dedication of the sacred space that has been previously constructed. Mm. It's not the time for the construction. And so likewise, for Genesis 1 to reflect seven days, if it's parallel to temple inauguration, order in the cosmos for God's sacred space to be established, then that those seven 24-hour days have nothing whatsoever to do with the age of the earth, right. which is a material question. Okay. So that, uh, yeah, going back to my question, you know, what if the science pointed to a young earth, you would say, then that's compatible if it points to an old earth. That's compatible too, because that's just not yep. the question Genesis 1 is getting at. There is no biblical view of the age of the earth. Okay. <laughs> if there's no biblical view, if there's no biblical view, then we're free to follow the science. Yeah. Or if you don't like the science, disagree with the science, but not because the Bible tells you something different. Yeah. Well, let, let's move on to Genesis 2 and 3, because from my vantage point, I have not looked at the scientific data like you or Trump or others have done. So I, it's, I, I, I tend to follow scholars I trust in this area. You're one of them. Um, when it comes to Adam, I, I would admit that this one's a little uh, tougher for me um, because it's in this the next 30 seconds out of my mouth could be complete ignorance. OK, so hang with me. It seems like just from a reading of Genesis two and three that Adam and Eve is intended to be this singular first human pair from which all spring. And yet it also seems to be that, especially in light of the human genome project with Francis Collins and others that that is really, we've, we know now from the science that cannot be, um, of course, every scientific theory is a theory that can be rendered invalid, but this one seems pretty, pretty solid um and so that forces us to have to go back to genesis 2 and 3 and say i don't know is is there a possible way to read this where it's not trying to convey a um human pair that might be a very honest evaluation in my mind it might be totally inaccurate but would love to hear your thoughts on both the natural reading of genesis 2 and 3 and the scientific data well of course i'm not inclined to let science tell me what i have to think about the bible sometimes those signs can prompt us to look again to see if we've got it right as with the previous discussion, I want to know what claims is the Bible making, but I have to read that through their claims and through their texts, not through my own demands and my own framework. That's always the toughest thing with interpretation of the Old Testament. You've got to make these adjustments so that you don't impose your modern view on the text. As I like to say, the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. And therefore, we have to be very careful about how we handle this. Yeah. So. It's one thing to say, 
it looks to me like, as you started your, your presentation, but of course, how things look to us is very much affected by our default, our own modern culture. So again, we have to try to let the text speak for itself. Now, at that point, we have to move biology off the table because they're not, they don't have biology. And so to say, well, this must be biologically the first and only of the species. Do you hear all the science coming out of that <laughs> sentence? And so we have to be careful about that. And we can say, oh, well, um, God uh, gave Adam a divine anesthesia so that he could remove surgically his rib. Listen to the science. Do Israelites know anything about anesthesia or surgery? Okay, so we have to kind of do a wipe, you know, and get, get that off the table and try to look at the text for what it is. What does the text believe is the significance of Adam and Eve? Now, I'm inclined to think that the text does view them as real people in a real past. Okay, but that doesn't answer the question of their significance. Is their significance biological? Is it species-oriented? That's certainly not as clear from, the, from what the Bible tells us. One of the first things we get at is uh, the uh, idea in 2.7 that Adam is formed from the dust. Right. We've got to be real careful with the Hebrew here. That preposition from is not there. It is not there. The Lord God formed humanity. Let's not call him Adam yet. The Lord God formed humanity. And then give me a semicolon or a comma or something. And then, with no preposition, dust of the earth. Dust from the ground. There's from. The dust is from the ground. It does not say that Adam is from the dust. Huh. Now, at that point... The conclusion I draw is that this is not in the book you read. Uh, I <laughs> the conclusion I draw is that it is not, therefore, telling me about chemical or biological composition. No surprise, that's not their thing anyway. That's our thing. Mm -hmm. But rather, it's telling you about identity. The Lord God created humanity. What is humanity? Dust from the earth. And what does dust equal? Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Mortality. Psalm 103. Now I've messed up my... Yeah. Um, where you remember our form, that we are dust. We are dust. Yeah. See, this is something peculiar of how, how Adam was formed, that we're all different. Adam was made out of dust. We're all born of woman. No, the Bible says pretty clearly that we're all dust. And so you and I and everybody else are dust. And yet we are born of woman. That means Adam can be dust and born of woman. Hmm. In other words, being dust doesn't preclude being born of woman. Uh, that makes sense. So it's so the dust is speaking to our kind of, it's it's a theological anthropological statement. Our relation, our mortality, our mortal relationship in relation to an immortal mortal God, and yet that immortal God has breathed life into our nostrils. And clearly, two yeah. seven is very poetic. I mean, several things in Genesis two. I mean, Genesis one to eleven has a lot of 
poetic, one might even say mythical kind of images being woven into the portrayal of the text, it seems like, from our vantage point. Um, uh, from our vantage point, again, I find that our categories often throw us off. Mm -hmm. So even though it has some what you might call poetic features, I don't call it poetry. Even though it has, shares overlaps some ideas of what mythology does in a culture. I don't want to call it mythology because those are our labels and our labels are going to distract us and probably distort. That's good. Yeah. So, so you would say, so yeah, summarize just in layman's terms, layperson's okay. terms, what's so, going on in Genesis two with the creation of humanity. And then I'm, my next question is going to be, what does the scientific data tell us? Right. He's not in Genesis. He is not trying to tell us about scientific origins. He is trying to tell us about human identity. Who are we? We are dust. We're mortal. Now, some people have trouble with that because of Romans 5. And they say, Paul says that death comes because of sin. Right. Well, sure he did, but let's read what Paul's saying. Paul knows Genesis pretty well. I think I'm pretty safe with that assumption. And Paul knows, therefore, that in chapter 2 and chapter 3, there is a, two trees in the garden. And those trees in the garden, one of them is a tree of life. And Paul's no idiot. He knows that immortal people don't need a tree of life. That would be a silly thing to be in the garden. Okay, so that means that the tree of life is an antidote to the inherent mortality. Yeah. People are mortal. God gave a tree of life as a remedy for that. When they sinned, they lost access to the tree of life, and therefore we are subject to death because of sin. Right. Not because we were previously immortal, but because the antidote that God supplied has been taken away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And that's, uh, yeah. So I, <laughs> this is going to come from left field, but I mean, I, I hold to a, a conditional immortality view of the afterlife. And one of our um, main foundational claims is that humans aren't intrinsically immortal, but immortality is granted um, as a gift of grace through the resurrection of Jesus and our faith in, in him. Second um, Peter, second uh, Timothy two talks about this first Timothy five and others. Um, so everything you're saying here, I I'm like, I, amen and amen. I'm not saying you're reading the Genesis two demand sort of a conditional mortality view of the afterlife, but um, it very much fits in with it. Um, and we, we don't need the, <laughs> that's a whole different area. Let's, let's stay in Genesis two. Um, so, so tell us the scientific, so you're saying Genesis 2 is just making kind of a generic statement about human identity, not a specific statement about human origins. What right. does the scientific data tell us about human origins and how confident can we be at this point in history in that, in the scientific data? Well, obviously I'm not the person to talk so much about that because I have no training in science and therefore every opinion I have is based on people that I trust. Yeah. And you, you have you know, read extensively in the scientific data, I know. Well, so I have, you're more informed than most people. But of course, as, as on many things, you can find people on either side of, of the equation. So um, it, certainly the scientific consensus today is that there is an evolutionary model. Now, there's all kinds of critiques of evolutionary models, but even those who are evolutionary biologists recognize the critiques and keep trying to work at it to make it better. Um, you know, I, I find myself very much ready to trust Francis Collins and his genetics insights. Um, and so, again, I take those pretty seriously. Uh, I might not be inclined to take them as seriously 
if I believe the Bible taught otherwise, because I feel pretty strongly about the Bible. But if I don't believe the Bible is making biological or genetic claims, if I don't believe that it's trying to critique some fundamental basis of evolution, then I can say they look compatible to me. Okay. As long as you recognize that whatever evolutionary model or process might be involved, that doesn't remove God from that process. Yeah. Can, can you be a little more specific when you say, you know, um, the, the evolutionary model of humanity? What, what is that? The, the, there was kind of pre-homo sapiens and then through time, all now, now we kind of developed in the homo sapiens. But as far as like having two humans from which all homo sapiens came from, that is not that doesn't resonate with the scientific data, right? No, it does not. Okay. Uh, so at that point, you know, again, people talk about the bottleneck. I'm out of my expertise here. People talk about the bottleneck, that there were never fewer than 5,000 humans. Uh, some say never fewer than 10,000. And again, I've, I've heard the science. I'm not really in a position to critique it. I know some people don't like it and they do critique it. Um, so again, I, I don't make that my case. I make my case, what does the Bible demand? Okay. Now, that means I have to ask the question, if Adam and Eve are not significant because they are biologically the first and only of a species, I mean, that's, that's how we often read kind of um, intuitionally. If they're not that, then why does the Bible talk about them? Why does it care? What, what's, what's their significance? And again, I draw my information from the text uh, that in uh, 2.15, uh, God gives him his task in the garden to serve and to keep. I don't take those as landscaping terms, menial work, digging in the ground, harvesting food, as important as those things can be. Um, the main importance is to recognize that the garden is not just green space, it's sacred space. And that they should therefore be guardians of the sacredness of sacred space, which is what priests do. And priests also are said to serve and keep. Same two Hebrew verbs. Yeah. So it looks to me like they are given priestly tasks. And that's their significance. That is, they are the forerunners uh, at the forefront of God's relationship with people. As God interacts with them, as God has come to dwell among us, yeah. and they're the ones that are standing in that place. And for that, they become the fountainhead of humanity, not species wise, but relationship with God wise. Okay. And so in that sense, they have a great significance as God begins his dwelling among his people. And so... Yeah. In that, yeah. in that case, the, the text of Genesis 2 has several very important points to make about our identity. One, of course, is the, the mortality. A second is what we would call ontology. That is, people are different from animals because Adam found no animals to work alongside him. Right. Thirdly, that people are in relationship with God. They're given a task in sacred space. And fourthly, that men and women are of the same nature. Mm -hmm. No inferiority, superiority. They are ontologically the same. And therefore, again, we need to think in those terms. 
So it's making very important points about human identity, which is a big deal today still. Right. But it's not making any points whatsoever about science. Okay. So would you say the best way to read Genesis 2 in light of the scientific data then is that um, Adam and Eve, two literal individual humans um, selected out of the lot of Homo sapiens to be the ones through which God would start to build this covenant relationship leading to uh, re restoring the temple presence in the garden through temple, church, resurrection, so on. Um, I, know it's a... <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it that way, but again, <laughs> it's, it's going the right direction. Um, okay, we don't, yeah, we, well, help me out here. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know if they were chosen from others. It's possible that there are others around. And if there are, then they were chosen uh, to be these representatives in sacred space. Okay. But we don't know that because, of course, the Bible does not address okay. any other people around. It's not its interest, although it in, implies it in three places. Cain finds a wife. Right. Cain's afraid that somebody, other people are going to kill him and Cain builds a city. All of those are suggestive that there are other people, but there are other ways to explain them as people always have. I don't yeah. think they're good ways, but they're ways. Um, and likewise, the Bible therefore does not confirm, but again, it has those implications. So it, it never gets around to suggesting that they were chosen. It never indicates that there's a covenant. You know, there's lots of pieces that we fill in theologically from our own vantage point. Um, and I, I wouldn't be quick to fill those in um, from either science or theology. Again, so, I just want yeah. to try to pick up the text. So so if it's not a covenant relationship, like what's special about Adam and Eve then? Like what's, what do they do? What's their, what's their function in Genesis 2, apart from the 4,000 plus other homo sapiens that were possibly around at that time? <laughs> Uh, they have a role in sacred space. That is a representative role. That's what priests do. Oh, okay. Priests are guardians of sacred space, and they are representatives, uh, mediating representatives. Think about Israel as a kingdom of priests. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're offering sacrifices for everybody. It means that they are mediating the knowledge and presence of God. Yeah, and that's That's a priestly role, and that's mm -hmm. what I would see Adam and Eve as involved in. Something just from my audience, too. Um... Something I guess John and I assume, and it's it's pretty well known in Old Testament scholarship, that a lot of the language used to describe Genesis 1 to 3, we see come up later um, in reference to the temple and priestly service in the temple. And it's it's not just a word here and there. There's like several things over and over and over. You know, God walks in the garden as he walks in the in 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 the temple and in the the. What's the two Hebrew words to serve and to keep in Genesis 2.15? We only see use of the priest in the temple. So it seems very clear, I think. I don't want to say undisputable because I rarely ever say that, but it seems pretty clear that the author is trying to make some connection with later temple ideology with the creation account. Did, how, is that... a, good, a good case can be made. And you also see the design of, in the tabernacle when it describes all of the features of the tabernacle. Right. And they keep linking back to the Garden of Eden. Right, right. One of the early, I mean, this is years ago, David Wenham, I think, wrote a good article just kind of documenting this. But again, I, I don't know too many Old Testament scholars who wouldn't agree some le on some level with this. I don't know. <laughs> At some level, there are some that, that bicker about it. But, of course, that's what we do. We're sure. scholars. <laughs> Especially during COVID, just uh, bicker about stuff. But uh, let, let's move on then. So um, 
should Genesis one to eleven as a whole? Do you see this as a distinct kind of literature? I mean, some people talk about the Genesis 1 to 11 myth, you know, and then once we get to 12, now we're getting into the raw historical stuff. Uh, uh, your thoughts on the flood, Tower of Babel. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, you can kind of take it in any direction. Maybe just begin with an overarching. Should we read Genesis 1 to 11 as really a distinct kind of literature that would allow for a, a lot of non-literal things from going on? It certainly is a distinct kind of literature. Um, okay, good. We'll start there. <laughs> and that's, it's distinct because there's nothing else like it. Now, that's what poses us the problem. Mm. I mean, we have cosmologies from the ancient world, but nothing like this. Not really. I mean, you read Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation epic. It's not like this. Mm. You read Atrahasis, which has creation and then some mess ups and then a flood. But it's still not like this. There are a couple parallels you could draw, but there's nothing quite like this. Hmm. Now that's what gives us a problem because the we ask we ask what genre is this? Problem. The concept of genre is based on commonality between several pieces of literature. In other words, you call something a genre because it fits into a set, hmm. and that set shares common elements and features and characteristics. If there's nothing else like Genesis 1 through 11, then there's no set to put it in. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there's no genre to call it. When we try to put it into a set, even a general one like myth, well, wait, the way we use the term myth means made up stuff. Right. Did Babylonians think that their mythology was made up stuff? Mm. No. To them, that was the most important literature that that existed to talk about reality. Mm -hmm. It's just they used a different way to do that. Well, then should we feel comfortable calling Genesis myth? I don't think so, because that's going to be suggested. It's either the same as the Babylonian view or the same as the word we use when we talk about things that are made up. Right. And it doesn't communicate well on either level. Well, people say we should call it history because it really happened. Wait a second. Does history have a, um, a monopoly on describing what really happened? In other words, to describe reality, do you have to use history? Well, no, you don't. History is one way to describe reality, observed reality, empirical in some cases reality. Uh, but again, we have different packaging. Yeah. There's all kinds of things we stick in that backpack that we call history, uh, assumptions that we make about it. And again, the minute we call Genesis 1 through 11 history, we've carried that whole backpack in and mm -hmm. plopped it on the text. And that's not appropriate either, right. because right. their way of thinking about reality connected to the past is not the same as the thing that today we call history. That that's super helpful. Yeah, that's so helpful. Um, I, it made me think of there's a well, there's a debate within gospel scholarship whether the gospels are unique literature. We do see some parallels though to Greco-Roman biography, so I wouldn't say it's completely unique, but it is. It's it's different. It's different within maybe a certain genre um, in that in that world. Um, Gosh, I have so many questions. Well, I, real quickly, and I don't want to take too much more of your time. Well, I do, but I don't. 
um tower babel this is one that i haven't wrestled with much at all but i've got a friend saying oh yeah the kind of traditional reading of tower babel also is just scientifically invalid and so i just haven't i literally have never read anything on what's going on in tower babel so i don't know can you maybe introduce us at lay person's level um what are some of the questions being discussed about the biblical presentation of the tower babel i imagine it's probably gonna you've already given us a huge running start um but if you had five minutes in a sunday school class of um, Christians that actually did want to know what the Bible says, not all these presuppositions. Sometimes Sunday school classes could be um, frustrating for people like you and I. But um, yeah, give us a snapshot of what's going on at the Tower of Babel. Well, it's tough to do a snapshot. I did my doctoral dissertation on the Tower of Babel. Oh. Uh, and so <laughs> snapshots. Difficult. Yes. Um, uh, also, my most recent treatment of the Tower of Babel was in a chapter in Lost World of the Flood. So if somebody wants to get kind of where I'm, how I'm thinking about the Tower of Babel now, that's where they would find it in a, a chapter in a readable book. Uh, basically, with the Tower of Babel, we've made a huge uh, mistake. And because we read it through Greek eyes, mm. Greek mythology eyes, uh, and didn't know the ancient Near East anymore. This is a ziggurat. Hardly anybody debates that. Uh, a ziggurat we know now has very clear function. Its function is so that God can come down and enter the temple and be worshipped. Mm. That's a whole lot different than building it so people can go up mm. and get to God or fight with God or replace God or be equal with God or whatever. It's not about people going up. It's about God coming down. That's what ziggurats are. Mm. They're part of sacred space. And so when the Israelites, not Israelites, when the builders... Watch it. When the builders are building, so much for the dissertation, when the builders are building the Tower of Babel, they're not trying to get up to God. They're trying to provide a means for him to come down. They want him to come down because they want him to dwell among them. Remember, that's what Genesis 1 was about, God creating a place where he could dwell with his people. Genesis 2, Garden of Eden, God dwelling with his people. Genesis 3, people say, we want to do it our way. Out they go, no access to the presence of God. They want to restore the presence of God because it's a good thing. The, the presence of God brings all kinds of benefits. So they want to restore the presence of God. So they're building a ziggurat so he can come down, come into his temple, dwell among them. That's, that's a biblical view. Unfortunately, instead of wanting the presence of God so that his name might be exalted, they are building it with ulterior motives. They are building it so their name might be exalted. Okay? Hmm. There's nothing wrong with making a name in the ancient world or in the Bible. Making a name just means doing something that you will be remembered by. But this text is very clear, and it's not a matter of pride. It's a matter of benefit. Hmm. They are building the tower so that God will come down, dwell among them, and prosper them, making their name great. And sacred space should not be exploited for our own benefits. Wow. And that's what they were doing wrong. So it wasn't a matter of pride. It was a matter of desire. It was a matter of greed. It was a matter of wanting to benefit themselves. And God's presence was not to be established with the idea of human benefits in mind instead of exalting his name. In contrast, of course, Yahweh is going to make a place where his name will dwell for his own namesake. Okay? Yeah. So 
the that's the nature of the tower building. Now, science has nothing to say about that one way or another. Were ziggurats built in the ancient world? Yes. Mm. Were they for the purpose of uh, divine presence? Absolutely. Uh, did they have the problem of wanting to benefit the people who built it? Absolutely. Read the royal inscriptions, all of them. But this, <laughs> this idea uh, that there's nothing contradictory, the place where science gets into a mess is with the languages. Right. Right? Is this the origin of languages? Mm -hmm. And again, I would qualify whether that's the Bible's claim. Okay? The whole idea was that by having God come to dwell among them, they were going to establish order, the city, a center of order, right? That's, that's what people were created in God's image to do, to work alongside him to bring order. But when they ate from the tree, they grabbed the wisdom so that they could do order on their own for their own benefits with themselves as center. And they're still doing that. That was a problem with the flood. Them seeking their own order brought only chaos, violence. And so now they're trying to establish order through God's presence. That's, that's good, but they still want that on their own terms. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so they're trying to bring order for themselves. And instead, God uses a confusion of the language to bring disorder non-order they can't carry out their order project this, they, that doesn't yeah. have to be tied into the origin of languages and, and even if there was a literal even if they were speaking the same language and god literally did confuse them that doesn't mean that's the origin of all human languages it's not like this is the fountainhead even on a very literal reading of genesis 11 right i mean i don't think it makes that claim that therefore this is where all the languages came from Matter of fact, it doesn't even tell you the group that's there. Right. It says all the world spoke the same language, but it's not all the world that traveled. The grammar doesn't suggest that all the world is the subject of that traveling. Oh, okay. So yeah. it's a certain group of them. Well, and in Genesis 10, before the Tower of Babel, at least literarily, we've got loads of different languages there. And some people say, well, it's he flip-flopped the chronology to kind of make room for that, right? But well, um, it doesn't have to be a flip-flop. In Genesis, they do use narrative recursion. That is, they'll follow one storyline, and then they'll back up and oh, pick yeah. that up and follow a different line. It does it several times. Well, Genesis yeah. 1 and 2, right? I mean, Genesis 2 kind of right. goes back to day 6. and. Um, well, no, I don't think so, but... Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we won't go back. Well, I'll let that linger. But um, well, the, the way you're reading... Tower of Babel, it just, I kept thinking how that leads to the genealogy leading to Abraham. I'm thinking like Genesis 12 on is a, feels like a nice fitting contrast to that, where we have God coming down into the life of Abraham, the father of many nations. And God's going to, God's going to cause his people to spread throughout the globe in a way that he has originally purposed rather than them doing it on their own kind of, yeah, I don't know. That's, it just seems Absolutely to fit very right. well. It's more than a contrast. It's God's counter initiative. Mm. The Tower of Babel was a human initiative to restore God's presence. Mm. The covenant is God's counter initiative to restore his presence because the covenant doesn't, doesn't end just in Abraham having a big family. It ends in Exodus where he brings his nation people now mm. to Mount Sinai, gives them instructions of building the tabernacle so that he can come and dwell among them. Yeah, yeah. The purpose of the covenant is God dwelling on earth. Yes. And, and of these, course, that, lastly, do you see a connection yeah. with uh, Acts 2 and Tower of Babel? Uh, I know oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 
they again there there of course they are exalting god's name yeah and god's presence actually does come down and he takes up his residence in them okay the covenant is fulfilled that is god actually dwelling among his people and then uh, the languages are reversed. They can all hear in their own language, and they scatter to all their places, but now not with a failed program, but carrying the presence of God with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. That's in the flood book as well, that chapter. Yeah, I, from a New Testament, I, I mean, I've seen it the other direction when I look at Acts 2 and then and then go to Tower of Babylon, I'm like, oh my gosh, this seems to be a, a super clear connection. And again, I don't know too many New Testament scholars who would uh, doubt that. That's just, I, I love how, I don't know. I just, just coming back, big picture stuff, just how seamless the Bible is. You know, I, I know I'm doing a series right now at a church on the reliability of the Bible, which is a tough question. You know, it's not, how do you know the Bible is trustworthy? It's like, well, it's a different philosophical question than how do you know there's a box of cookies in the pantry? You know, if you want to prove that to be right or wrong, you open up the pantry door and there it is, or there it isn't. But is the Bible well, once true? It's there, it won't be there anymore. You know, that box of cookies. Yeah. But never mind. <laughs> but I just, one of the things I brought up is just the internal testimony of the Bible, the cohesion. And I don't, I didn't even want to go so far like every single archaeological find is proving the Bible to be correct because that's not true. There's some, there are some complications there. I think the overall, the overall historical archaeological testimony is looking pretty good but i don't want to say it's just like oh just study archaeology and your faith will go through the roof but but the, the, this internal cohesion with multiple authors spanning thousands of years i mean it is at least impressive i'm not saying that proves the reliability but it does feel very different than other comparable religious types of literature um one of my favorite sermons to preach is called Emmanuel Theology. Mm. People can find it on YouTube, just Walton Emmanuel Theology. I've preached it dozens of times. And um, in that, I really take you from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 21, tracing the theme of the presence of God. Uh, we've talked about part of it today, but of course it goes all the way through uh, Tabernacle Temple. It goes into uh, the um, Incarnation and uh, Pentecost and we are the temple and all the way to new revelation, new, new creation. So you made that... theology, John Walton. Yeah. Check that out on YouTube. I might, I, if I remember, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes, but John, I've taken uh, enough of your time. I wish we can. Yeah. Go now from Genesis 12 all the way through <laughs> spend a few hours, but um, I'm, I'm sure we have stuff to do. John, thanks so much for being on the show. If you want to check out John's work, I mean, just, you can Google John H. Walton. Um, you, you're professor at Wheaton college still, right? That's still where you're at. Yes. Is that Okay. Um, and uh, go to Amazon, John H. Walton. You can check out lots of books, all the way from hardcore uh, academic stuff to textbooks to more lay person, um, uh, more you know popular level prose. But everything he, he writes is is very thoughtful. So thanks, John, for being on the show. I encourage people to check out your stuff. You're welcome. Good to be here. All right, take care. 